There's a famous quote by Blaise Pascal. He was a 17th century French philosopher, a mathematician. Many of you have probably heard this quote, or at least part of it. I want you to hear the whole thing this morning. All men, Pascal wrote, seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. That's the part that you might be familiar with. But here's the rest of what Pascal wrote. After such a great number of years, no one without faith has reached the point that is the happiness to which all men continually look. Everyone complains, princes and subjects, noblemen and commoners, old and young, strong and weak, learned and ignorant, healthy and sick, of all countries, all times, all ages, and all conditions. This has gone on for so long, is so continuous and so uniform, it should certainly convince us of our inability to reach that happiness by our own efforts. The present never satisfies us. Man is ever seeking something he does not yet possess. Pascal continues, but all of those things are inadequate because the infinite abyss, that insatiable desire for our happiness, can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object. That is to say, only by God himself. That's as true today as it was when Pascal wrote it 400 years ago. And it's easy for us to point to Hollywood and Wall Street for examples of celebrities and the wealthy who find themselves no more satisfied today than back when they were poor and unknown. But we're no different. Many of us are on a hamster wheel seeking things, things that are on the earth, things and relationships that hold out the promise of satisfaction, fullness, spirituality, and even greater levels of holiness. But all of these things are infinitely insufficient to meet our greatest needs or to satisfy our deepest desires. The problem isn't that true satisfaction is a mirage that disappears as you get closer and closer to it. It's not that it's elusive or unattainable. It's that you're seeking it in the wrong place. You're seeking it where it cannot be found. We're seeking it here below, but it isn't here. It is above. This, too, is the problem facing the Colossians. False teachers were 
telling them things they needed to do to add to what they had in Christ in order to gain greater fullness and greater satisfaction. And Paul demolishes that thinking by pointing them to the supremacy of Christ. He alone is all-sufficient and all-satisfying. Last week, Josh walked us through the last four verses of chapter 2. Paul's argument there was that if the, if the Colossians had, in a sense, died with Christ to the elemental spirits of the world, then it was irrational for them to submit to the rules and regulations of these false teachers. Putting your body through extreme fasting and putting restrictions on what you're allowed to eat and what you're allowed to touch and taste, those things do not have the power to do what they promise. They cannot satisfy the soul, nor can they stop the flesh from indulging itself. The only way to do that, the only way to kill sin, is for the believer to die to it in union with Christ. And we'll talk about what that means shortly. The death of Christ is where sin-killing power resides. It does not reside in religious rules or regulations. And now as we enter chapter 3, Paul begins to apply all that's happened to the believer in Christ. The believer's death, his burial, and his resurrection with Christ have vast implications for the way we live. They are as streams that flow into every area of the Christian life. This is where the rubber meets the road of holy living. It's about killing sin and putting on holiness. It's about how wives submit to husbands and how husbands love their wives and their children. And it's about how children obey parents. This is a down-to-earth message about the things above. This message has three points. This morning, that's no surprise. A lot of our sermons do. Three points, but the first is the foundation of all that follows. The first point is what is true for believers. The second and third points are what believers are to do as a result of or overflowing from that truth. First, let's see what's true. Christ is your life. I take those words from verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What does that mean? That Christ is your life. If you've never heard it put that way, you might think it comes from a sappy love song. You could make the analogy, but this is not that when the word of God speaks of Christ in relationship to life, it is rich and as deep as the ocean in substance. Let me give you a sampling. This would be a beautiful study to do someday. Christ is the author of life, Acts 3. He is the creator of life. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. John 1. Christ's words are life. 
The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. John 6. Christ is the bread of life. I am the bread of life, Jesus said. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John 6. Christ is the sovereign giver of life. He gives life to whom he will. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. John 5. Life itself is in Christ. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John 1. If you desire life, you must eat the flesh of Christ and drink the blood of Christ. John 6. Eternal life is for those who believe in Christ. John 3. The living water that Christ freely gives becomes a spring welling up to eternal life. John 4. And to Martha, grieving over the loss of her brother, Jesus mercifully reveals himself as the resurrection and the life. And then he comforts her with these words. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Oh, we could spend a year of sermons on what it means that Christ is your life. But in this section of Scripture, Paul points us to four realities of this life. We're just going to touch on two of them this morning. One, you have been raised with Christ. That's in verse 1. Two, you have died with Christ. That's in verse 3. And then the two additional realities that we'll cover in the coming weeks. You have put off the old self, verse 9. And number 4, you have put on the new self, verse 10. Those are the foundation. They are what is true. They are not things for you to do. They are blood-bought benefits for all believers. Let's take a look at the first two. Verse 1. If... Then, we'll come back to that little word, if. If, then, you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Now, obviously, you weren't there. Not in a physical sense, when Christ rose from the dead. So what does this mean? To understand it, we need a quick definition of those little words, with Christ. Paul uses them twice in these four verses, and you could argue that he uses it three times if you take a look at the end of verse 4. And he uses them elsewhere in the letter. With Christ is one of Paul's ways of expressing the believer's union with Christ. That's the technical term, union with Christ. It means that the believer is spiritually in Christ. Christ is in them. They are in him, drawing their life from him like a branch, drawing life-giving sap from the trunk of a tree. Union with Christ is the work of the Holy Spirit, applying all that Christ accomplished in his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension in the life of the believers. In a sense, believers become one with Christ. There's a solidarity with him. They are identified with him. What does it mean then 
to be raised in union with Christ. MacArthur calls this our co-resurrection. Paul mentions it in chapter 2, verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, if you remember, that's our spirit baptism we talked about a few weeks ago. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. To be raised with Christ means that the believer now has the power for living in newness of life. This is the resurrection power applied to sinners, rendering sin and death powerless over them. You can see this for yourself in Romans chapter 6. In verse 4, Paul writes to them, We were buried, therefore, with Christ, our union, by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, now stop. You might be expecting that Paul would finish that sentence with something like this. Just as Christ was raised, you too someday will be raised at the resurrection. And that's gloriously true, but that's not what Paul's implication is here. Here's what he says. He says that we were raised with Christ in order that we too might walk in newness of life. The power of sin and the power of evil spirits that entice us to sin have been defeated. Believers are no longer enslaved to them. They can now walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. You remember, that's Paul and Timothy's prayer for the Colossians. They started this letter with. <clears throat> Believers used to be dead, dead in their sins, but now they are alive. They have eyes to see and ears to hear, and they have hearts to find fullness and satisfaction in Christ. That is, in Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and understanding and knowledge. Yes. Believers, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So much more should be said about our union with Christ and his death. But you've not only been raised with Christ, verse 3, you've died with Christ. You have died... And this is an interesting phrase that Paul uses. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. Being raised with Christ assumes a death of some kind. Otherwise, being raised would make little sense. Raised from what, you would ask? Believers have been raised from death. Now, the scriptures use death in at least four different ways. Physical death spiritual death, the second death, and then what Paul is describing here, a death to sin. This is also what he described to the Romans in the passage we read a minute ago. Let's back up a couple of verses, Romans 6, and let's start at verse 1. What shall we say then, follow Paul's argument, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Here's his argument. 
how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God, or the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's exactly Paul's argument to the Colossians in chapter 2, verse 20. He tells them, if you've died, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? You died. The power of sin and the demonic has been broken. You're free. If you're free, why in the world would you give yourself over to things that cannot deliver what they promise? Believer, the moment you came to Christ, you were spiritually united with him in his death. You were spiritually circumcised, and you were spirit-baptized. You died to sin. Why in the world would you give yourself back over to it? Let's take a look at the second half of verse 3. This peculiar phrase, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Commentators find at least three ideas in that little phrase, hidden with Christ in God. The believer's life is hidden because it is spiritual. It's hidden because the world isn't able to fully understand it since it is discerned spiritually. And the believer's life is hidden, as in it is safe and secure in God. That's language we see often in the Psalms. But I think Jonathan Edwards does a far better job of explaining this. You just have to put up with his backwards, colonial American English to appreciate it. Here's what he said. Here's what he said it means for our life to be hidden with Christ in God. Dead men are hid. I'm trying to say this like I'm not from the South. It just reads that way. Dead men are hid. They're out of sight. Your life is hid. The world don't see that you live. They don't see that you are happy. But look upon you miserable because you deny yourselves and don't gratify the flesh nor give yourselves that enjoyment of earthly things that they do. They don't see what you live upon. They don't know how or in what or by what means you enjoy comfort and happiness. The world looks upon you as dead, as you are indeed dead to the world. But your life is in heaven. You live your life above the world. Your life and comfort and happiness is in God, whom the world sees not. It is in heaven with Christ. That's the foundation. Those are the blood-bought benefits of believers. Christ is your life, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You have been raised with him, and you have died with him brothers and sisters. Paul now gives the Colossians two commands. These are a response or an overflow 
from the grace of God that was given to them in life, in union with Christ, in both his death and his resurrection. Verse 1. If then you've been raised with Christ, here's the command, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. The word seek means exactly as you think. It is to devote serious effort to. It is to obtain your desire, your objective. It is to strive for, to aim at, or to, to desire to possess. This command isn't about being so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. Rather, it's a pervasive attitude that drives the way you think and the way you live. You're not focused on the things of earth. You're focused upon treasure in heaven. The way you respond to your wife when she dings the car door, that reflects what you're thinking and what you're seeking and what your mind is set upon. The way you talk about your boss and the way you spend your money. It is a down-to-earth passion for the things above. A pervasive attitude that drives the way you live and think. The word seek here is in the present tense. Which means that it is ongoing. It is continuous. An accurate but awkward translation of it is this. The things above... Be constantly seeking. Which begs the question, what are these things? What are the things that are above that we should so earnestly seek? I think we find the answer at the beginning of this letter in the prayer of Paul and Timothy. And we find it again at the beginning of chapter 2 in verses 2 and 3. I'll just list them. We must seek the knowledge of God's will. Chapter 1 verse 9. We seek spiritual wisdom, again, verse 9. We seek spiritual understanding, verse 9. We seek the riches of full assurance of understanding, chapter 2, verse 2. And we seek the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ himself, chapter 2, verse 2. To seek the things that are above is to do as Paul to press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. Philippians 3, in the words of Jesus, it is to seek first, that's the same word, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Two reasons for this. First, because Christ is there. Don't forget the backdrop of this passage. False teachers were telling the Colossians, they could control sinful indulgences of their flesh by adding rules and regulations and religious practices to the gospel. Paul's response was to point them to the reality that they have been raised with Christ and have access to the very presence of Christ in the heavenlies. They are where Christ is. They don't need angels or visions or man-made religious exercises or anything else. They have access to the all-sufficient Christ. Not only do they have access, but in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And they have been filled in him. So if believers have access to Christ, who is the fullness of God, and in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, 
and they are filled in him, and they have all they can ever need or ever desire to satisfy their souls. Christ is infinitely sufficient to meet your greatest needs, to satisfy your deepest longings, and to fill the infinite abyss of your desires, as Pascal put it. Only Christ is sufficient for that. The second reason to think, to seek the things that are above is that Christ is there and he is in a position of absolute authority, power, and majesty. Verse 1. Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Paul lifted that directly from Psalm 110. That's the most frequently quoted psalm in the New Testament. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The right hand of the king was a position of authority. You know that God doesn't have hands, right? This is a figure of speech. Being at the right hand of the Almighty means that Christ is in a position of absolute power and absolute authority. It is a majestic position that he is in. This is one of those passages where the early church got the words for the apostles, the apostles' creed. He ascended into heaven and is seated on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Here's the connection. Not only is Christ sufficient to meet your greatest needs and to fill the infinite abyss of your desires, but he has all power and authority at his disposal. And if he is for us, who can be against us? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No one and no thing. Paul's assertion that Christ is seated at the right hand of God is a direct counter to the false teachers. They offered the Colossians freedom or deliverance of some kind from elemental spirits. Yet Christ's authority and power are absolute. He is supreme over all rulers and authorities. He's the one who created them. Paul says elsewhere that Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. What a comfort this must have been for the Colossians and what a comfort it is to us today. Christ's power is sufficient for any attack the enemy brings against you. The enemy is on a leash and he can only go as far as the all-powerful Christ determines. Paul's second command is in verse 2. And it gives us an explanation of sorts of the first command. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And then, in other words, in other words, set your minds on things that are above. And then Paul states the command in the negative. Not on things that are on earth. Set your mind on something is to ponder it, to dwell upon it, to keep 
thinking about it or to fixate your attention upon it. Again, this command is in the present tense, just like the word seek, which tells us that it's continuous and it's ongoing. Be constantly setting your mind on things that are above. To seek the things that are above, the first command, is to dwell upon, to fixate on the knowledge, wisdom, and understanding of Christ, God's mystery. That's what we are to do. Before we continue, let me try to sum up those things so I can get it into a sentence for us. You're not going to like my sentence. As I said, these things above include the knowledge of God's will, spiritual wisdom, spiritual understanding, the riches of full assurance of understanding, and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ himself. So if I had to put all of that into a sentence, I think these two commands amount to this. Be continually seeking, or be in continuous pursuit of an ever-increasing experiential knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Be in continuous pursuit of an ever-increasing experiential knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. I say experiential, a word we rarely use these days. I say it because we are not merely dealing with head knowledge here. This knowledge of Christ is relational. It involves intimacy and the affections of your heart. It is experiential. And I say that it is ever-increasing because the knowledge and wisdom and riches of Christ have no bounds. This seeking is an infinite endeavor. We will spend eternity getting to know our Lord. And the more we know Him, the more we will delight in Him. There will be no end to our happiness in His presence. Our infinite abyss will be fully satisfied. It will happen, as Paul says in our final verse, verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Believers, you have died with Christ. You have been raised with Christ. You have ascended, so to speak, into the heavenlies with Christ. And one day, you will return with Him, no longer hidden, but reflecting His glory. The blinding radiance of all His perfections. What a day that will be. So if you're wondering, okay, how do I do this? Well, I think... We're going to ask that question in community groups this week. How do I put feet to this seeking the things that are above and setting our minds on the things that are above? We'll stay a little high level this morning. What I want to do, though, is circle back to the very first word in our passage, if. If, then, you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. That little word might be the most important word in this sermon. 
You see, Paul used it to introduce what is introduce what is true before he told us what to do. It indicates a condition. Paul is saying that if Christ is your life, if you are in Christ, if you have died and been raised with Christ, then seek. Then set your minds. The continuous pursuit of ever-increasing experiential knowledge of Christ is the overflow of these gospel truths in the life of the believer. The believer. Seeking and setting your mind is what your new heart desires, though not perfectly in this life. If, however, if, however, you have not been raised with Christ, it is impossible for you to desire this experiential knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is contrary to your nature. You do not want that kind of intimacy with him. Nor can you muster loving affections for him. You might want a knowledge of sorts about Christ, but not that kind of knowledge. And yet what Pascal observed 400 years ago is still true of you today. You seek happiness, and yet you cannot be satisfied. The present never satisfies. The infinite abyss, your insatiable desire for happiness, can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object, God himself. You know, St. Augustine said something like that 1,200 years before Pascal. He said in a prayer, in a written prayer, You, God, have formed us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find rest in you. If you are on that hamster wheel, restlessly seeking your satisfaction from things below, I urge you to consider the futility and the hopelessness of your condition. If the if in verse 1 does not include you, then you are dead in your sins. You are a sinner by birth and by every one of your actions. You have broken the letter of the spirit of every one of God's commandments. Even your littlest, your littlest of sins amount to infinitely odious acts of treason against the God who created you. He is a good God, and He is a just God, which means that He cannot allow your sins to go unpunished. The wages of your sins is death and hell, but the grace of God has appeared. In a mind-blowing act of love, God sent His Son, Jesus, to take on human flesh, to live the perfect life you could not live, and to suffer and die a humiliating death on a Roman cross for the sake of His people. On that bloody cross, He paid the penalties for their sins. On the third day, He rose bodily from the grave, and He now sits at the right hand of the Almighty in heaven. And he offers forgiveness and 
life and infinite soul satisfying love to all who repent of their sins and put their trust in him alone for salvation that's the gospel if you have put your trust in Christ alone oh then you will be united with him in his death and raised to life with him a great exchange will take place your sin will be credited to him and the penalty that you owed will have been paid by him as your substitute not only will you have been forgiven of all sins past present and future but the righteousness of Christ will be credited to your account a great and glorious exchange is being offered to you with your new heart raised with Christ these two commands to seek and to set your minds on things that are above will become increasingly delightful they will become your very life if you have not been raised with Christ you will find these things unthinkable indeed you will find them impossible you will continue seeking the things below, restlessly trying to fill the abyss of your never-ending desires. You will never be satisfied until you find your satisfaction in Christ. You will never be at rest until you find your rest in Him. Consider your plight. Consider what Christ has done. Embrace Him by faith and enter into life. Seek Christ. Seek the things that are above. Let me pray for you. Oh, Father, we have only scratched the surface of this text. And, Father, we want to. We want to seek the things that are above. Father, we want to be pursuing the knowledge and wisdom of your Son in all that we do. So, Father, I pray that you would help us. Father, I pray that if, if there are those here who, are, who find themselves restless and dissatisfied, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict them that they are seeking happiness where they cannot find it. So, Father, I pray that you would do that work. I pray that this morning, those who do not know you and your son would come to know you. Father, I pray that you would do that work in hearts that have yet to come alive. Father, do a mighty work. Do a powerful work. And Father, in our hearts as we consider how to obey these two commands, Father, I pray that it would be such an overflow of what has happened to us, Father, that it will bring you and your Son much glory. I pray this in Jesus' name.